Hi, my name is Amy Scragg, and I am your host of Purpose Driven Law. I want to welcome and thank you for joining me. I designed this podcast to create a faith-based community within the plaintiff legal industry and share the stories of thought-provoking leaders who lead their personal and professional lives by their faith. I want to provide impactful content for those seeking purpose by sharing the experiences of those who have, exploring how their faith and purpose impacts their decisions, how they handle their clients and leadership within their businesses and homes. I want to know what their why is, how they discovered it, and tools and strategies on how they pursue it. Purpose-Driven Law is not a religious-based podcast. This is a faith-based community, and a life that is built off faith looks differently to everyone. I am intrigued and inspired by people who lead by their faith, purpose, and values. On this platform, you will hear stories from all different types of faith, spirituality, and religion. We were all uniquely and wonderfully made and called for a higher purpose in this life. Welcome to Purpose Driven Law. Remember, you can find my podcast videos on my YouTube channel, iTunes, and Spotify. Don't forget to subscribe. Today's guest is not only a client, but someone who has become a dear friend. He is someone that I truly respect. His name is Keith Jackson. Keith is a founding partner of Riley and Jackson out of Birmingham, Alabama. He currently leads in the court-appointed state of Alabama Local Government Executive Committee on the ongoing opioid litigation and has previously served on multiple MDL plaintiff steering committees. He is actively involved in Camp Lejeune, AFFF firefighting foam, IVC filters, recalled strike implants, and more. He has been selected for Best Lawyer in America, Super Lawyers, National Trial Lawyers Top 100, National Trial Lawyers Top 25 Mass Tort Lawyers, but besides all of this professional success Keith has seen, he is also extremely active in his community, church, and home life. Keith is married to Trisha, his wife, and they have two sons, William and Evan. Though this is only on paper, I'm so excited to be digging in deeper with Keith so with that being said, Keith Jackson, welcome to Purpose Driven Law. Thank you, Amy. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. And I have to tell you, you just managed to fit 25 years on the one page. So that was, that was a pretty good accomplishment. There we go. I think that was what, in like five minutes, I think? Maybe two. Uh, there we go. Well, like I said, thank you again for uh, being the first guest on Purpose Driven Law. I, uh, I, like I said before, I've really come to respect you over the times that we have gotten to know each other, and uh, I always value our conversations, so this is the perfect guest that I wanted to have for the first episode of Purpose Driven Law. So before we really dive into it, um, I think first obvious question is, why become a lawyer? <laughs> 
You know, the answer to that question may not be what, what you're hoping. Uh, I became a lawyer because I could not get into the MBA program I wanted to attend after college. Uh, All right. Thank you were, for your honesty. Were, yeah, well, that's, that's what happened. There were two or three schools. Um, all of which told me go get two years of work experience and come back and we would love to have you. And I, I remembered at the time a conversation I had with a senior staff member for then Senator John Hines, and she kept telling me, business school's not for you, you need to be a lawyer. And when those doors were closed on me, uh, I just I looked for a window to crawl through and I ended up uh, taking the LSAT, it, it, it went okay. And Law school was an option, and I, I changed directions, and I actually went to law school to be a tax lawyer. I came out of law school as a defense lawyer, and it was, um, gosh, it was four years later before I became a plaintiff's lawyer, so it, it was a process. Yeah, man. I The more people that I talk to in this space, that's very like a, a common story that people were first defense lawyers, and then they traded over into the plaintiff space. Why did you leave defense? What was your calling to come into the plaintiff world? Um, let me first kind of couch this in terms of I have I have many many good friends and fellow believers and fellow you know people of faith who are defense lawyers and they love what they do. Um, they're excited about what they do. I was not when I was a defense lawyer. I, I did not think I was making any positive change in the world. In fact, I think I may have been working for some negative change in the world for part of my career. I was at a mm. large firm uh, mm. doing the lowest level work for a large tobacco company during the tobacco litigation. And I just began looking for uh, another path. And I had an old high school friend from years before uh, who was a plaintiff's lawyer in Birmingham. I was working in Atlanta and I sat down with him one day. Uh, we talked, we met. Uh, we played golf. Neither of us played golf. So that took a while. We had a long time to talk. And six months later, uh, we started Riley and Jackson. Wow. Wow. And your partner is also a believer too. I've had a, I've had a chance to talk to him as well. So yes. when building your practice and your built and your, and your business, did you and your partner have, uh, um, did, your, did you and your partner have that as your foundation from the very beginning, or was that something that evolved as the practice grew? Uh, the, the answer is yes, and I can, I can add a little flavor to that as well. Yes. I'm in Atlanta, living in Decatur, Georgia. I had spoken with Rob. I actually came to Birmingham to interview with a big firm. We had talk, talked and spoken and, and worked through the, the details over the course of months. The deal was pretty much put to bed. And it was just a question of me selling my townhouse and moving to Birmingham. And my phone rang about 10, 10, 15, one night. This is a long time ago, Amy. It was a landline. I had a phone at my house. <laughs> and when I answered it, it was a very short, hey, Keith, this is Rob. I have one more question. I said, certain. And his question was, you are a believer, right? And I said, yes, I am. You know this about me. And he said, okay, because I'm not going in the business with someone who doesn't share my faith. Mm. So the springboard of the firm, uh, he actually, he went out on his own for a number of reasons. One of them was because he wanted to be surrounded by people who had a similar faith. And the draw to me was he was making change in the world and he had a similar faith to mine. Mm. Um, so that was, it was the bedrock of our firm from the first day. 
Very cool. Very cool. That was a very long answer to a short question, but that's how it happened. No, it's great. Um, yeah, just even the Bible talks about this too, is when you're picking a partner, when you're picking your wife or your husband, it's so important to pick somebody that's of equal yoke, right? And, you know, I don't think business should be treated any differently. Um, because, you know, you are in a lifelong partnership, well, most of the time with your business partner. And I see him and, more than I see my wife. Yeah, well, I'm sure Trisha is really, you know, tickled about that. But, you know, bless her. I feel like the hills and valleys that you go through as a business evolves, and especially a law firm where you guys are dealing with, you know, the plaintiff side and the mass tort side. These are very, you know... And it's during very tra tragic moments of these people's lives and very, very heavy things. And so being able to have a partner to lean on as you are navigating those waters is something that is, you know, really crucial. Now, this podcast is based on faith and spirituality. And I know you and I are Christians and there's other people in our space who lead their practices by their spirituality or by their faith, but what would be, you know, some advice that you could give to newer lawyers that are coming into our space who do have a faith or do have a, you know, a Christian background and they are looking to build a, a firm or they're looking to, um, you know, just do practice law a little bit differently. What would be some advice that you could give them? You know, I would tell them two things right out of the gate. If you're coming into this space and, and Amy, I'll tell you, it doesn't matter if you're coming into this space as a lawyer or as a vendor, as a court reporter, whatever the role may be, you're going to make a living off the tragedy of other people's lives. That's mm -hmm. the reality of what we do. Mm -hmm. And that's true in the single event space. It's true in the mass tort space. So when you, you want to get into this world, if you want to build your career on that, do not lose sight of what's paying your bills. It's, it's other people's pain. Mm -hmm. So when you, when you accept that reality um, and you're trying to start a firm or join a firm, it, it's critical, I think, to work with people it, maybe they're not all Christians, but people of faith who will value that as much as you do. There are countless times where Rob and I meet to make decisions that are to our own financial disadvantage, but they're to the advantage of our clients because it is the right thing to do. And if you aren't partnered with people who are guided by the same principles you are, you're going to encounter problems that are avoidable. If, if you simply make sure you make the right choices early in your career. Mm, mm, that's really, really valuable. That's, that's really valuable. You know, it's, you it's, a, it's a temptation for, for me. I'm 54. I've been doing this for a long time. It is still a temptation for me. Mm -hmm. um, and it will remain so. It's a temptation for everybody. Greed creeps into our practice. And if oh, you gosh. have edges... Uh, built around not not only your own life, but with the people you work with to check you to be your speed bump uh, when you're mm -hmm. starting to go down that path. Um, you may not end up making the decisions that you're satisfied with when you look back on them. So 
it, it trickles into all parts of your professional life. And, and in a practice like mine, we only have all five lawyers into your personal life. Who you partner yourself with is absolutely critical to your career. Mm-hmm. Totally. I would like to touch on what your personal relationship with you and Trisha looks like a little bit later in the, in the recording, but um, I just want to touch on, you mentioned greed, and I know that you've heard me say, I'm, I'm in the mass towards marketing space. Like, that's probably one of the most, you know, shone upon things in our, in our industry, um, you know, and how do you balance that greed, that pride that kind of ekes in? And, you know, I think that it's what we do in the mass tort space is, you know, it's the greater of two evils, right? But we are making, we are making generational change though. There's products that aren't on the shelves anymore because of what, you know, I do in the marketing space and what you do in the courtroom. We make people aware of what products are harming them and their families and making awareness, even though some people may have an opinion about it, it's, it's needed. And it's making that change for the greater good, in my opinion. And we could also go down the road on, you know, how ego and greed and pride have you know, flooded and poisoned our industry. Um, and do you, this leads me to my next question. What do you think of our justice system? Do you think our justice system works? You know, the options uh, to which I've been exposed, it's the best I've seen. Uh, hmm. it, it's, it is the best experiment out there. Uh, I certainly think it needs to be refined, but any system that we develop is only as good as the people who are part of it. And mm-hmm. you're putting your finger on it. And it's not just the mass tort space. It's happening in the single event space oh, yeah. Yeah. as well. Uh, there, you know, we, we have a saying, we like, you know, we in America can't have nice things. Uh, we, we like to ruin what we have and mass tort lawyers, we're, we're some of the worst um, at doing just that. When, when mm-hmm. you can make change and gosh, you know, talc is a great example. And I'll use that because I was not involved in that at all. Uh, mm-hmm. had nothing to do with that. But the work those lawyers did, some here in Alabama and many elsewhere, uh, absolutely and literally will save lives. Oh, 100%. That, that yeah. product's been pulled from various markets and will be pulled from other markets. Mm-hmm. That's not to say that, that there weren't uh, shooting in the dark. Thousands of cases filed that should not have been filed because some lawyers enter into deals with some financers and use some marketers simply to, to develop inventory. Mm-hmm. That that needs to stop. So our justice system, I, I think, is on solid footing. I have unrelated opinions about tort reform and, and juror mm-hmm. bias and things we have to deal with. Mm-hmm. But until we as a plaintiff's bar can effectively control our own human nature's uh, human nature urges, we're going to have a problem with our system. And it, it's just getting worse. Mm-hmm. That's my soapbox moment for the day, Amy. No, thank you for sharing. I appreciate that. Um, I want to shift the conversation more into purpose. And I know that you and I have had some great deep conversations about 
purpose and finding your passion in this life and using Christ as a fuel for that as, as a plug-in almost. And I just wanted you to share on how you discovered your purpose and how you heard your calling from God and kind of how you implement that through your firm and through your day-to-day. Yeah, this is the this is the question where I made the joke with you. Um, how how long do you have? Right. We have forever. Well, uh, I will I will I will keep this. Um, I am not going to say I'll keep this short. I will be as don't keep possible. it short. Yeah, I want to yeah, hear. Here's, here's what I think, but I really think even to start answering that question, right? We have to sort of define what what do we mean when we say purpose. Because I think our purpose is different than our objective. And when I have conversations like this with people, um, I hear what what I used to say when I was really my, my great crisis of career was in my late 20s. And I asked these types of questions, um, you know, what is God's will for my life? And, and more importantly, am I walking in God's will right now? I don't think those are questions about purpose. I think those are questions about objective. An objective is a goal, right? An objective is what you're trying to do. And, and our objective, at least for, for the Christian, our objective is very clear. We are to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. I mean, mm-hmm. that objective's clear. But our purpose, to circle back to what you said earlier, that, that's our why. Our purpose is, is our reason. Um, it's not a, a checklist. So, you know, when I'm thinking about my purpose, I think about why did God create me as opposed to some other version of me with whatever strengths I have and weaknesses I have uh, with, with whatever gifts I have and blind spots that I have. He made me the, this way um, and I'm able to develop certain things. I'm never going to be a singer, right? I'm mm-hmm. never going to be a physicist. I will not be an astronaut. Those are not my strengths. I will get lost in my own neighborhood because I have no spatial awareness. I'm certainly so never going to be an architect. That was never going to be in, in the card. So why did he make me the way he made me? So once we're able to focus on kind of being instead of what we're doing, uh, I think we can start focusing on our purpose. And the other thing I would say about purpose is, <clears throat> and, and I've never thought about this when, when I, you're, you're half my age, I think. So just for context, for you know, this discussion, I never thought about it this way when I was your age, but purpose is dynamic. It's not static. Uh, it is going to evolve. Mm. So I, I offer all that background to get to your question. You know, how, how did I discover my purpose? And the first thing was asking the right question. Not, um, am I following God's plan? But why did God create me? So if that's my question, then, all right, let's start there. And what I, what I figured out, and, and it took years, and it's a work in process, is I have certain passions. And they, they run the gamut like most people do. I mean, I'm passionate about dogs, marine wildlife, individual liberties, justice, uh, welcoming uh, immigrants into our country, uh, chocolate, travel. I'm passionate about a lot of you things. You say chocolate? Chocolate. 
Uh, really caramel. I mean, if I'm being honest, I have a, <laughs> I have a, a sick addiction to, to the flavor of caramel. But I also have certain gifts. So to, to learn this process, to learn my purpose, really took it and still takes, I still work on it, a four-step process. And I think it, it would apply across the board. The first, and, and I think most important, is I try to seek God through prayer and scripture. Right? The more I know about God, the more I, I understand God, the more my purpose becomes evident. Uh, I second, I make time for quiet reflection. And that's kind of the other part of that conversation, right? It's time to listen and reflect on how I'm being led and, and, and what I'm being shown through prayer. Mm -hmm. I go through an ongoing process of self-examination and I try to be honest with myself about what I have a gift for and what I don't. And then when I, I recognize any type of gift, I try to gift, I try to nurture it, I try to grow it, I try to use it. And I try to do that in service to God and others to accomplish my objective. And as I go through that process, I, I've realized, and actually Rob and I were just talking about this before I got on, on the call with you. You can just create a simple Venn diagram at that point, draw a circle and put your gifts in it. And then draw a circle and put your passions in that circle. If you're not happy with your passions, go develop more. Wow. It's certainly possible. And where those two intersect, that's where your purpose is. Wow. So for me, um, I found a common theme. I like to be helpful. I'm hmm. at my happiest when I'm helpful. Uh, I'm at my most satisfied with myself when I'm helpful. I feel closest to God when I'm helpful. I feel closest to others when I'm helpful. And I don't mean, you know, the generic sense of I've, I've roamed through the neighborhood, you know, raking leaves for my neighbors. I mean, how do I apply the gifts that I have to be helpful to other people? And, you know, I don't know, did I become a plaintiff's lawyer because I like to be helpful? Or do I like to be helpful because I became a plaintiff's attorney? I don't know which of those came first. Mm -hmm. I do know this. When you put me in this firm where I am now with this partner that I've had for gosh, 25 years, we have certain abilities. We have the financial means and we have the time and we have the firm to help people who need to be helped. And the cynic, you know, the cynic may say, well, you're making money. And as I said earlier, you really have to be cognizant, cognizant of that. But at the end of the day, my purpose um, at this stage of my life and for the past many years, it, it may sound ill-defined. It may sound kind of vanilla, but it is simply to be helpful with the education and the skill set that I have been given and I have been able to develop over the years. And I find frankly, great satisfaction in that. Wow. I have never heard of the Venn diagram before. Like, that's genius. To Try it out and see if it fits for you. Um, yeah. I, you know, I have mentioned to you before, a lot of people will say, well, follow your heart. And I, I don't think that's absolutely true. There's some truth mm -hmm. in that, but I do think your heart will follow you. Mm. Uh, if, if you, I had absolutely no knowledge of or interest in the clean water shortage in the world until I was introduced to Never Thirst at a summer workout of all places. It was a fundraiser. 
And the more time I've spent with them, the more I have become passionate about what they do. So if, if your passion circle doesn't overlay with your gifts circle the way you want it to, work on your passions. You work on your gifts too, but your passions can grow and change and you can add to that circle as much as you want to. What did your evolution look like for your purpose? Well, it was, uh, I'm trying to remember my age. I must've been 29 um, yeah. when I moved to Birmingham. But but for a year or two before that, I was asking the question I meant early, uh, I mentioned earlier because I, I did not feel satisfied mm-hmm. with what I was doing. I knew I wasn't where I was supposed to be. I was not evenly yoked with the person who was my immediate boss at all. Mm. So I was, you know, maybe my prayer was a little simplistic or maybe it was correct for that time of my life, but it was show me where to go. Mm. Show me where to go. And then next we'll talk about what to do. Um, I don't, I don't pretend that I needed to be in Birmingham to live out my purpose, but for whatever reason, this is the door that opened. Um, I was content living in Atlanta in a much bigger city, uh, but I moved to a smaller city where my, my now wife, uh, then about to be fiance, certainly did not think she was going to spend most of her life. Um, <laughs> so it, it, it started there, or at least it was there uh, in my 20s, which was probably not a lot different than how I was thinking about my purpose when I was 18. Like, give me a checklist, God, who, what am I supposed to do? What should I should I go to this school? Should I live in this city? Should I buy that house? And I still listen to Sunday school classes, you know, sit in Sunday school classes and listen, and listen to people offer up prayer requests for those things. And, and that's fine. But mm-hmm. as I got older and, and life through a few unexpected, you know, turbulent waters in my path, then it became a, a more I, I don't know if it's more mature or just a different approach of talking to God of one, be with me, uh, two, guide me, um, and three, just show me how I can serve. Yeah, you know, we were, I was in a Bible study one day fretting over that that question of what's God's will and, and a much older believer than I, both by years and uh, by age, asked if he could just asked me one question. And I said, of course. And, and his question to me was, is there any reason you can't fulfill God's will where you are in your life right now? I had, had no good answer to that question. And that sort of began the process of realizing that God, God didn't need me to go to law school. I, I probably could have gone to some other educational curriculum or no educational curriculum. I could have gone into my family's car business what God needed me from me was obedience and service in his name. And when I realized that well, my objective is what it is, and that's not going to change, then my purpose sort of became, um, or at least the, the process of identifying my purpose became clearer as I worried less about day-to-day decisions, decisions and more about what am I doing to impact other people? What am I doing to reflect, albeit poorly, um, some semblance of God's grace uh, that he's already shown me? Uh, and when I go to bed at the end of the day, am I going to you know, rest satisfied that I served him? Mm-hmm. I, I, I hate to sound like I'm in a pulpit, but that's the process. 
Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate you sharing that with me and, you know, show me, be with me, guide me. And then what's God's will? What's your will? Mm -hmm. Do you see how that involvement changed from statements to question? Oh yeah. And I thought that was really interesting. Um, so like I mentioned before, and as I was introducing you, you are very involved in these mass tort litigations and, um, you know, mass torts are pretty tragic when you are peeling back the onion and dealing with those people day to day. And even though we call them mass torts, you're actively involved in these litigations, whereas some people are just passive and can talk about that, but being active in, you know, a, a firefighting foam case or a Camp Lejeune case or transvaginal mesh, any of them really, how do you support your clients emotionally? And how do you separate your emotions from, you know, work? And then when you go and see Trisha and the boys. Oh, that second one's tough. That's the yeah. You know, the first part, the mass torts world is funny. Uh, there are so many different levels and so many different tiers in our mm -hmm. business model particularly historically as a single event firm is not set up for us to hold leadership positions in multiple mass torts. So there are people clearly who are much more involved in a particular mass tort than, than I am or I ever will be. And on the other end of the spectrum are the, the lawyers you identified who are very passive. They're not all inventory gatherers. Some are, but some treat uh, mass torts uh, unfortunately, as a kind of get your ticket and stand in line at the Disney ride and wait for your turn to get on. Mm. We, we reject that out of hand, um, that approach. So what, what we try to do is take our single event mentality um, and we approach every client, even if they're in a mass torts, because it's not mass to that client, it's an injury. And, and treat them as we would treat a single event client. So some people handle mass torts as gatherers. Others are hunters. We can say that. We can, <laughs> um, you know, and, and we're probably somewhere in the middle. But we, we, if we're going to get into a mass tort, and you know, uh, we're not in all of them and we don't try to have a footprint in all of them. Mm -hmm. We're going to limit the cases that we will file to one cases we believe in and and two cases where we can talk to our clients as our clients. Our clients are not an inventory to us. They're just our clients. And mass tort is a phrase that we use a lot, but it's not a phrase you're going to hear any client ever say because their case is their case and they do not care about the other 1,000 or 2,000. They, they don't understand it because they're dealing with their own injury. So, mm -hmm. you know, the, the way we try to approach it um, is with the same mentality. It's limiting, but the same mentality we approach our single event cases. If a client wants to talk to a lawyer, a client talks to a lawyer and we come alongside them where they are 
and do everything that we can and everything that we've learned how to do over the years to assure them that not only have they put their faith in a firm that cares about them, we are going to do everything we can to put their individual case in the best possible position is if it has merit. And I, you know, I'm sure we fail at times, um, but we spend a lot of hours here talking about and working on processes to make sure we can do that for each of them. The hard part is how do you turn it off at the end of the day? Yeah. Uh, and I think um, Trisha may tell you, I don't. Um, mm. That if they're, you know, I, I told you early, I have gifts, I have blind spots. And I think one of my blind spots that, that she illustrates for me far too often um, is I don't always leave it at the office and you, you can carry the stress and the anxiety and the tension home. Um, and I'm sure it's true when you're a, a vendor and you're working on larger mm -hmm. deals, we're all trying to do the right thing while simultaneously providing for our families. That's what we're doing, whether we're a family of one or two. Mm -hmm. and those two things don't always mesh. Mm -hmm. <laughs> terribly well and when when you know there's a, a failure or a, a, a disappointment or frustration or just stress and anxiety and you're not careful as I'm too often I'm not it follows you into the door and um, you know I am fortunate that and I'm and I say this not kidding I'm fortunate that I have a wife who will tell me uh, when I've done that and I'll tell her when, when she's done that, when she's brought something stressful into our discussion. Um, and that, you know, that open and honest dialogue, while not always comfortable, is certainly helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, I'm an open you... book, Amy Scragberry. Amy Scragberry, yeah. See your name. My... Thanks. <laughs> I need to switch it over soon, but that will take time. Um, so... To wrap this conversation up, again, thank you for your time and your honesty and, uh, um, and your vulnerability. I really appreciate it. Um, the last question that I would hear from you, and I think that you've answered this, but moving forward in this next chapter of life that you're in, what is your why ultimate? Yeah. I want to go to Bozeman and ski. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> that's not the answer you're looking for. I know. I'm kidding. No. So, it, I, I can't predict the next chapter. I, I I really don't know what that's going to look like, other than the pace at which I work now um, is not going to continue into my 70s. And, and my law partner and I have that conversation often. I have a father and a paternal grandfather, both of whom were diagnosed with dementia in their seventies. And I'm not going to work up until the time when I'm at risk for that. Mm. So there will come a time when I ramp down, but for now, um, I, I, I sort of challenge myself to, to maintain the purpose that, that I think I have realized I currently have and to bleed that purpose out, not just from working for the plaintiffs who decide to hire us, but also in my interactions with defense lawyers and other people we encounter in this space. And you know 
not all of the discussions that that we have are comfortable mm -hmm. or fun <laughs> or um you know sometimes uh you decide or i decide or a defense lawyer decides that a very difficult conversation needs to happen and the challenge there is you know, how do you get your message across, whether it's in a deposition with a defense lawyer or a conversation that I'm having with a vendor, do what you think you need to do for your own firm, your own business, your own families, your own clients, while also, again, albeit poorly, trying to reflect God's grace. That's sort of the work in progress for me. That's the next chapter, I guess. Um, I think I do okay with that with defense lawyers until the, the switch flips and some defense lawyers have the ability to switch the flip that to flip the switch mm -hmm. and um, you know grace gets left in the rearview mirror uh, so even at 54 I have plenty of room for growth so next chapter in my career I don't know next chapter in my purpose um, that that's the ongoing work very good very good well, again, Keith, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. And uh, again, thank you for being the first guinea pigs. <laughs> Just getting the first guest for Purpose Driven Law. Um, Amy, I'm glad you're doing this. Um, the, the fact that you saw not only the need for this in this space, but the opening for it and, and you've followed the the calling you have and you're putting um you know the, the process in place and, and taking those steps forward even though you don't know really exactly what you're stepping into yeah um, that's fantastic thank you so much to keith jackson for joining us on the first episode of purpose driven law if you found value from this podcast please share it with somebody you know subscribe and leave a five-star review it goes a really long way in helping out the show getting discovered by others catch us next time with me amy berry on purpose driven law bye-bye <laughs>